1: you're listening to the exchange here's today's show thank you Scott I'm Melissa Lee and today for Kelly Evans here's what's ahead on the exchange stocks bouncing back after Friday's big sell-off did the markets overreact to Omicron or are they too optimistic right now and it's not just stock crypto also acting as if it is over Omicron and what if anything will the Fed do about this new variant and how will bond markets react to that plus Jack Dorsey steps aside from Twitter. The stock's shooting up on that news, now falling back. We'll take a look at what it could mean for the company. But we begin this hour with this market comeback. Dom Chu's got the numbers.
2: Especially Melissa, because we're just about 10 points on the NASDAQ away from getting everything we lost on Friday's session. That's how dramatic it has been. But there are some interesting cross currents playing out right now. The reopening trade, yes, it's bouncing back a little bit more, but not nearly as dramatically as technology, media, and communication services. For example, the Dow Industrials lost roughly 900 and some points, 905 points. We've gotten 346 back. We're at the session highs right now. The S&P lost about 106 points. We've gotten 75 of those back. But the NASDAQ... Lost 353 and just a couple of moments ago, we got to about 340 points of upside or so. So the Nasdaq is the real outperformer here, up about 2%, 1.5% gains here for the S&P and the Dow Industrials about 1%, 46.69 the last trade there for the S&P. One of those themes that I just spoke about has been this notion that large cap technology, especially NASDAQ-oriented names, has been an outperformer. I want to show you a two-month chart of the QQQ Trust, which tracks the NASDAQ 100 versus the iShares Russell 2000 ETF, the ticker IWM. Look at that gap that's developed over the course of the last couple of weeks and, of course, over the last couple of months here. That's been a real pronounced theme that many people have looked at. And by the way, if there are fears, even though President Biden in his press conference just this past hour said that economic not lockdowns are not needed right now, if there was a slowdown, small cap stocks get hit a lot more than some of their large cap cousins. So watch out for that trend. Maybe markets are trying to tell us something about what the anticipation for the future is. But one place that's participating a lot in this upside, Melissa, has been the semiconductor stocks. I will note that not a lot of stocks have hit record highs in trading today because we have seen that big pullback. But Xilinx on the semiconductor side, up to a percent. It did hit a record high in sessions today. It speaks more broadly to the semiconductor trade, which has bounced back commensurate with the rest of the NASDAQ and the market overall for tech. Melissa, I'll send things back over to
1: you. All right. Thanks so much, Dom. Let's dig deeper into the Omicron variant of COVID-19 fears of the new strain leading to the worst Black Friday session on record for all three major indices. And today the WHO is warning this latest mutation, the seventh COVID variant identified, poses a quote, very high global risk and could have severe consequences for areas beyond South of Africa where it originated. Meg Terrell joins us now with how the drug makers are addressing this threat. Meg, they're in high gear right now.
3: Yeah, they certainly are, Mel. You know, we started to hear from them last week about this, uh, really getting into gear over Thanksgiving, starting work on whether they need to update the vaccines to this new variant. We spoke with Moderna CEO Stefan Bancel this morning. um, Here's what he told us about how high his level of concern is about this variant.
4: We believe this virus is highly infectious. Uh, We need to get more data to confirm this, but it seems to be much more infectious than Delta, which, of course, is problematic. And we also believe that it's already present in most countries. I think what happened with the planes coming from South Africa to Holland uh, over the weekend is a good example. I believe that most countries that have direct flights from South Africa in the last seven to ten days have already uh, cases in that country that they might not be aware of.
3: So Moderna detailing a three-point plan to address this new variant. It's already tested a higher-dose booster, which it has available, uh, and they're going to test that to see if that could stand up against this new variant. They're also looking at two booster candidates they've already developed that target sort of parts of the beta and delta variants that may be similar to Omicron, and then they are working on an Omicron-specific booster candidate. We also spoke with Pfizer CEO Albert Borla this morning. He told us they also started on Friday developing a potential new booster a new vaccine focused on Omicron. Uh, And he had this to say about his optimism for the company's ability to pivot.
5: Next year, it is almost in the pocket, 4 billion doses that we can make. If there is a need for a new one, we will make almost 4 billion doses of the new one. So with that in mind, that availability will not be an issue, that the efficacy is very high, that there are treatments around. No, I'm optimistic. We have been preparing for that and we are going to, 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 to win this battle as well.
3: And Pfizer also has told us this morning it has increased the manufacturing estimate for its antiviral for next year now to 80 million courses, up from 50 million it had been projecting previously. And Borla telling us he expects because of the way that drug works, it shouldn't be affected by Omicron's uh, mutations. They will need to test that to confirm, but Merck telling us the same thing for its drugs. So some hope there from the antiviral smell.
1: Meg, Borla was talking about $4 billion in the pocket um, next year, and then another, is it another $4 billion if they have to work on a separate vaccine for Omicron?
3: I don't think so. I think he was yeah, talking about being able to turn the manufacturing over and get that $4 billion, Yeah. And then t-
1: today we're hearing about a an, uh, monoclonal antibody treatment potentially in the pipeline over at Adagio Therapeutics. Um, how does that compare to the antiviral that Pfizer is working, working on?
3: Oh, well, that's a really good question. Uh, We need to look at the clinical data to see how they would compare. It would be an injection rather than something that you take by mouth for five days, like Pfizer's antiviral. Um, They are looking at it in preventive situations. So that's a little bit different too. So these drugs could have different roles to play. um, Whether you want to take a pill for five days or get a shot, um, all of these things can play potentially different roles. And Adagio is up so much because it's expected it could hold up against Omicron.
1: All right, Meg, thanks so much. And we will see Meg a little bit later on with the CEO of Adagio Therapeutics. That stock is up 80 percent on the antibody drug's potential impact on the new variant. Well, stocks, as we mentioned, making a comeback following Friday's big sell-off. Does today's market action suggest last week was just a knee-jerk reaction? Joining us now is John Augustine, chief investment officer of Huntington Private Bank. John, always great to see you.
6: Great to see you, Melissa.
1: Um, What what do you think Friday was all about? And do you think today's market reaction is, is where the market should be?
6: Yeah. To us, Friday was about low low volume trading and a new headline. And the new headline was not favorable. You've been reporting on it this morning. So those are the two things that caught our attention on Friday. Most of the people in the states were out and a bad headline.
1: So where are we in terms of where we go with the markets toward the end of the year with the sort of the cloud hanging over the markets from Omicron. There's a lot we don't know, and there's a lot that we will learn over the next few weeks in terms of the efficacy of the current vaccines and efficacy of the drugs in the pipeline that could possibly treat it.
6: Totally. Safety's first. So that's number one. And and as everyone's been saying this year, the path of the virus dictates the path of the economy. So there's going to be much debate about that. But, But we see very positive headlines coming out with respect to Omicron so far today, as matter as as far as how it affects you and potential variants of it or death rates of it, don't wanna really say that, but down the future. So stocks are coming back to the large stocks as Dom talked about earlier. And then it's coming back to well, all sectors now being up. It's really building strength as we move through the day in our view. And that's that's the correct view given the pace of the economy even the pace of earnings.
1: Do you think that the path of the virus has been the predictor of the markets for, say, the past six months or even even I would go so far as to say a year or has it been much more so the 10 year yield? And I guess I'm asking that question because in terms of the trajectory of of the gains made in certain sectors, the 10 year yield could arguably um, be the more important driver of that.
6: Yes and no. So they, they seem to offset each other, just as they did on Friday. Stocks down, yields down, then yields down, NASDAQ up. So there, there has been that play, and as Dom talked about earlier, with the large tech stocks benefiting from that. So, so they seem to alter each other or go side by side, lower yields, higher yields, et cetera. What, what we would say is that stocks were impacted by the Delta variant really in August and September, almost through the beginning of October before it became under control or known by the markets that it was going to be under control. This one, as you said, we don't know all the science yet, but stocks are taking a more optimistic view today and 10 years up a little bit today.
1: Are you Are you just staying the course at this point, John, through the end of the year? Yeah. I mean, do you stay with, with big cap? Do you stay with big cap tech in particular? Do you go to financials
6: so, the, the, the equity team, our equity team's going more to a barbell. So, they'll go to the cyclical, and then they'll stay with some defensive. So, that's been the right approach. They've used that approach because we didn't know the back of the virus, and that's coming back again. Do we keep the stance of stocks over bonds? Yes, we keep that stance. Real yields are still too negative for, for us to be moving into. So, we keep the stock stance, keep it mostly in the U.S., but we are keeping some small and mid-caps because we think growth is pretty good next year.
1: All right, John, great to see you, thank you. Thanks,
6: happy holidays.
1: You too, John Augustine with Huntington Private Bank. Coming up, shares of Twitter are now negative after an initial pop with CEO Jack Dorsey stepping down as CEO. The stock is still down 40% from its February high. So where does it go from here? We'll dig into that next. Plus, Bitcoin is rebounding from its lowest level since October, but the crypto is still on pace. for are second negative month in three. We'll dive into the volatility. The exchange is back right after this.
5: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny!
1: Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a volatile day for shares of Twitter after the company announced CEO Jack Dorsey is stepping down effective. Immediately, the company's chief technology officer, Parag Agrawal, will be taking over. Dorsey co-founded Twitter in 2006 and ran the company until 2008 when he was forced out of the CEO role. He returned in 2015 and the stock has rallied more than 75 percent since then. Joining us now is Jason Helstein, managing director and head of internet research at Oppenheimer. Jason, great to have you with us. Thank you. What do you think accounts for the stock move? A pop and then and now a, a drop?
4: Yeah, I mean, you could kind of argue that there are very few, uh, I don't know how many you know, CEOs of public companies who run two public companies. And um, you know, I think that's been a criticism. So, you know, you had that. Um, we can kind of talk about why. I think when people saw perhaps maybe the promoting the CTO and not doing um, and and I don't know him, so I'm making no judgments. Um, but not not kind of looking for, a, you know, doing a formal search. Maybe people were disappointed in that. Mm-hmm. I think um, you, you you folks and I think others have been talking about why maybe he decided to do this and you've had some Bitcoin claims. So is is Jack less excited about uh, Twitter than he is about Square? So you can kind of probably, I mean, volatile market, right? We can kind yeah. of come up with different reasons. But, um, you know, this was an unusual situation to have kind of, you know, being the, the CEO of two public companies.
1: So uh, right now, are you more optimistic about the stock than you were, say, you know, five hours ago before, before the news was out, Jason? Or I mean, the first things that came to my mind when I heard the news is I thought, oh, maybe they're going to sell the company because they didn't do this extensive CEO search or really bad earnings are coming. It's going to be a really bad quarter. Really bad things are, are coming down the pike. <laughs> what do you think?
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm a little less worried about being a bad quarter. We actually think there's going to be a pretty good for brand advertising they don't really have some of the headwinds around apple that some of the other companies have so we actually think it's going to be a good quarter um you know look him not being there does not make it easier to sell the company uh maybe a little bit but i mean i you know i I can't imagine he would have really stood in the way you know if if it was it was fair value um you know look again i do think kind of again a disappointment like this is, a, this is a very interesting company with with a lot of opportunity, and would there be a lot of people out there who would want to run it? Um, so, so that that's, that's probably. I mean, if you just back up and look at the metrics uh, in the past, you know, look at a two year Kager, they've grown um, monetization twenty three a uh, users twenty three percent at least in the U S. on a two year basis, um, and then monetization is up seventeen. And when we take a step back and think about this company. Um, on average, we will probably spend about half the amount of time per user than they spend on some other company. So you still have that opportunity to increase time spend. Um, they are improving the monetization gaps. Um, well, Jack definitely visionary. We think he you know put together a pretty significant um, technology roadmap for them. I think the, the the issue with this company has been execution. I think it's been a little bit less about um, you know what do we need to do, but but let's actually kind of roll up our sleeves and do it. And and he he really has improved product innovation. So I mean look, I think for the next, what do you want to call it? You know, twenty-four months, they have a pretty straightforward roadmap, I think, on mm-hmm. um, what they need to do. And now and now it's really execution.
1: So what do you know about agroal? I mean he he's been at the company for not 10 much. years. Not not much. Not yeah, much. So isn't, isn't that strange as an analyst for you to not know much about the company who's taking who about this the executive who's taking over a ceo who's been at the company for 10 months and it just dropped in your lap you know one morning that this guy is going to be the the head
4: well our sense is they will um you know ha- have some kind of analyst data him to the street but like it's, it's typical for public companies um the investors are familiar with the ceo and cfo and um the rest of the executives are kind of busy running the company so it's not unusual that investors may not know, uh, a CTO or a chief marketing officer. Um, I mean, look, historically, there was a, if I recall, a chief revenue officer that, that was pretty well known at, at the company. So um, I, we will get to know him. But again, if we're just trying to understand the immediate, stu- you know, kind of reaction to the stock, um, perhaps investors would have wanted a more broad search that would have looked at candidates outside the company.
1: All right, Jason, we're going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Halstein with Oppenheimer. Still ahead, the Fed's next move will the Omicron variant derail the central bank's policy plan. We'll take a look at the tapered timeline ahead of Chair Powell's congressional testimony tomorrow morning. And as we head to break, check out some of the EV makers rebounding today after Lee Auto beat S. Smith and saw third quarter sales triple year over year. And another EV maker is on his way to the public market with Phoenix Motors filing for an IPO this morning. Another name to watch in this crowded space. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. What a bounce back in the markets from Friday's session. We are close to session highs right now with the Dow up almost a percent. The S&P 500 just a couple points off its session highs, up 1.6 percent. And the Nasdaq adding 2 percent on the day. Here are some of the movers this hour. Peloton and Zoom lower today, reversing course after they each saw 5 percent gains during Friday's sell-off. Peloton is down 75% from its recent high, while Zoom is down 56%. Citi downgrading Merck from a buy to a neutral, cutting its price target from 105 to 85, saying its drug pipeline struggles will hold the stock back. The analyst also citing Merck's new data, indicating that its experimental COVID pill showed showed lower efficacy in reducing the risk of hospitalization and deaths. For more on that call, you can head on over to CNBC.com slash pro. And Disney is benefiting from the midday bounce for stocks following President Biden's comments that COVID lockdowns are not needed for now. Off the table is what he said. Jim Cramer writing in his newsletter that he is bullish on the stock long-term and buying more shares on this dip for his charitable trust. For more on Jim's insights, sign up for CNBC Investing Club newsletter by pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on the screen or go to cnbc.com slash investing club. Now let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Melissa, and here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden is urging Americans to wear a mask indoors and in public places. Biden says that the new Omicron variant
3: will appear in the U.S. sooner or later, but there is no reason to overreact.
8: There are three messages about the new variant that I want the American people to hear. First, this variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. We have the best vaccine in the world, <clears throat> the best medicines, the best scientists, and we're learning more every single day. And we'll fight this variant with scientific and, and knowledgeable actions and speed, not chaos and confusion.
1: On the news, learning more about the newest form of COVID, team coverage tonight at 7 Eastern. Russia says that it has successfully tested a hypersonic missile. Officials say that the Zircon cruise missile hit a practice target from a distance of more than 200 miles. And Lee Elder, a golfer who helped break down racial barriers, has died at the age of 87. In 1975, Elder was the first black golfer to play in the Masters. You're now up to date. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Coming up, shares of Adagio Therapeutics surging today after the company said antibody treatment should be effective against Omicron. With Morgan Stanley so confident the firm upgraded the name, we'll talk to the CEO of Adagio next. And this new variant may have tempered the taper timeline. The details and what it could mean for the bank stocks still ahead. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. We're just about two weeks away from the final Fed meeting of the year. And the emergence of the Omicron COVID variant may already be having an impact on the taper timeline. Steve Leisman joins us now with that story. Steve, in what way?
5: Listen, you know, unless convincing evidence emerges before the next Fed meeting that the new variant is a mild one, an accelerated taper is almost certainly off the table as the Fed is not going to make a move like that in the face of the current uncertainty Ian said from Pantheon writing over the weekend, if a clearer and reasonably positive picture has not emerged by the time of the December 14th to 15th meeting, then the Fed presumably will delay the decision to accelerate the pace of tapering. If this feels like I'm hurting your neck going back and forth, it is because it turns the consensus on its head. Just days ago, growth forecasts were on the rise. The job market looked to be accelerating. And there was growing conviction the Fed was worried enough about inflation to speed up its taper. Now... Three scenarios are being gamed out, at least three anyway. In what looks to be the new base case, the Fed would keep the current taper in place while it awaits information. In the best case, where the variant ends up being contained or not as bad as Delta, the Fed could revisit the idea of a faster taper in January and then possible rate hikes in the spring or early summer. In the worst case where the variant requires a reset of the immunizations to date, as in everybody has to get revaccinated and lockdowns are put in place, the taper would halt. Growth forecasts would come down. One outcome to look out for an increase in inflationary pressures because of the new strains could further limit supply. And the Fed, Melissa, as we've seen, can do little about that.
1: Steve, thank you, Steve Leisman. So how will all this uncertainty at the Fed impact bank stocks? They got crushed during Friday's sell-off and are down slightly today. Our next guest says, "Buy the dips as their foundations are strong. Joining us now. Barry Knapp, Ironside's macroeconomics managing partner, Barry, good to see you. Um, Hi, Melissa. If what Steve says is correct in terms of the accelerated timeline, is that that doesn't sound like a good thing necessarily for banks?.
8: Um. I actually think it it it'll be fine for banks. Um, so I, I think Steve's probably on to something. I had been operating under the assumption that Friday's payroll report will be quite strong. The inflation numbers for November released mid-December would be strong. And we probably would have gotten that acceleration of the taper in December. Okay, so you move it to January. And then think about what's likely to start to happen to the fixed income market again. And this isn't the core of my thesis for bank stocks, but we'll start here because it does clearly impact how the stocks trade and investor psychology around them. But you'll start to get the same sort of push that we were getting up until, you know, the uh, Omicron uh, variant emerged, where you'll start to pull rate hikes forward. The Fed will be even further behind the curve. I strongly agree with Steve's final point is this is more of an inflationary shock than a dis or a a, a shock that's likely to slow growth. So when we've already seen lockdowns in Asia. So that's going to put further pressure on supply chains. And it also increases the probability of goods prices being permanent or good price inflation being permanently stronger. So you'll start to push rate hikes uh, at least in the back end of them up Further, you'll also see those inflation break-evens start to move out uh, quite a bit. It'll be another one of these fedids behind the curve kind of trades. And that, you know, will probably help bank psychology. But what's more important for me with what's going on with banks right now is you're seeing a real pickup in loan growth. And they're starting to cut securities holdings or at least slow their accumulation of securities holdings. This is really good for return on equity, which is already. At its highest level since pre-global financial crisis, so the underlying fundamental story is getting better, and this really is only going to delay the rates fed behind the curve. And the further the Fed gets behind the curve, they're more gonna ha- the more they're going to have to push that front end up, and that front end is really what's going to drive bank profitability.
1: Isn't that going to be though? Uh, I mean, it, when I hear further behind the curve, I get concerned that the markets will be in for much more of a shock because the the pace of a Fed tightening will be much faster than what the markets are anticipating. And that overall, while on paper it may seem like a good thing for banks, really overall for market psychology that's a very bad thing. Bad thing.
8: Um, it, it, it is in the sense that you will undoubtedly get you know, a four to six week shock when we reach that point and the market um, starts to deal with it, right? So if you go back through every business cycle since World War II, typically you had one of these Fed normalization risk-off episodes. Last cycle, we had eight, right? And those happened when they tried to end all the various QE programs and zero rates. So that transition, that risk-off episode is unavoidable. And there'll be no place to hide, Melissa. Those are highly correlated sell-offs. Everything will go down. But typically, that is not going to be... terminal for the business cycle it'll be hard for asset prices for the course of 4 to 6 weeks mm-hmm. but that ultimately is your is your buying opportunity however if you think about okay well we were positioned for year end strong year end seasonality i was concerned that if the fed announced that taper in december or acceleration of the taper that the first trade out of the gate in january would be down now that looks more like a february type event something akin to what happened in 2018 where January is fine; it extends the 2021 trends, and then we get to the end of January. They accelerate the taper, and we'll have to deal with this in February. So, it's it's a little tactical, um, but still through next year, I would expect because of bank asset mix starting to shift towards loans, that they'll have a they'll have a very good year, and that profitability return on equity number is is absolutely crucial um, above 10%. They build capital quickly. They can return it to shareholders Mm -hmm. depending on what our Fed looks like. But uh, but that's really the primary driver of bank stock performance, not the shape of the curve or, you know, moving in short term rates even.
1: Even though the president said that lockdowns would be off the table, at least at this point, there are lockdowns going on in Europe, possibly Asia and other parts of the world because of their their populations that are less vaccinated, for instance. And that could pose some more supply chain disruptions. Barry, I'm wondering, at what point do you think inflation caused by supply chain disruptions is so sticky, becomes permanent? As you said, price hikes will stick and that actually impacts the consumer and their psychology.
8: I think we have some ways to go before we get to real demand destruction. So the way I've I've framed this out is thinking about we were in a disinflationary regime, much like we were in in the aftermath of World War II through the early 1960s. Then we went through a reflationary regime where core trend inflation moved from two to five. During that period in really during the LBJ administration, when it was moving up through to 4 or 5%. Equity valuations held because nominal growth was strong. It was finally a good period for banks. They had performed poorly in the 50s like they did in the 2010s. So that reflationary regime was okay. Eventually, you got to the point where once you blew through 4% as trend, and I understand we're through there now, but assume we settle down a little bit next year, if we get well above four for trend inflation, then that's when it gets embedded in expectations. That's when it's hard for businesses to catch up. That's when, you know, the fact that you have operating leverage because you don't have to replace your fixed costs gets mitigated just by the velocity of that price, price pressure. But I, I, I think that 2022 is not going to be it's not going to be the case in 2022. But make no mistake, I'm in the reflationary camp. I do think eventually this is going to be a bigger problem for the mm-hmm. consumer. But the household sector is in such good shape right now, Melissa, it's hard to see serious demand destruction, even with these price increases, in part because wage growth was already accelerating before the pandemic, and it's further accelerated. So consumers will look at this and go, gee, my nominal wage growth is good. I can spend. Eventually, they'll realize they're getting beat up, eaten up by inflation, right. but that process takes some time.
1: Very great to get your thoughts, as always very now. Thanks, Melissa. Ironsides. Coming up, shares of Adagio Therapeutics surging today on prospects that its antibody drug could be effective against Omicron. We'll talk to the CEO of Adagio next. welcome back to the exchange shares of adagio therapeutics soaring today as wall street bets that its antibody drugs may be more effective in treating the new COVID variant omicron morgan stanley upgrading the stock this morning to overweight saying the drugs uh, the dr- company's drug is likely to make more take more market share relative to other antibodies as omicron becomes dominant with us is meg terrell she joins us with the ceo of adagio therapeutics tilman Gerngross. meg
3: well, thanks so much, Mel. Dr. Gringross, thanks for being with us today. Quite a stock move you're seeing in Adagio shares. Tell us about your approach with your antibody drug and what role you see it playing against COVID.
7: Yeah, thanks for having me, Meg. Um, the role we see our antibody playing is um, uh, both in the treatment of COVID-19 as well as the prevention. And so we're running global trials right now um, uh, um, in an effort to uh, you know substantiate The efficacy of our molecule in these two indications.
3: And tell us about the way you designed it. Um, Where did it originate? You know, we've heard about other antibodies that have been taken from people who have survived either SARS-1 or uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the early days, or like Regeneron designed these in the lab using mice. How was yours developed and why does it um, have the ability not to be affected by these very mutated variants like Omicron?
7: Um, the reason is, exactly how you, uh, how you phrased the question, is of how we went about discovering the molecule. So we very early on appreciated the potential danger from variants emerging, and you see this with many infectious diseases, in particular, in fact, coronaviruses. So um, we, from the beginning, sort of thought about that uh, possibility and decided to design a molecule that is broadly neutralizing across the entire class of these SARS-like viruses or viruses. So what we sought to find is a molecule that neutralizes SARS-1 as well as SARS-CoV-2 and targets a very unique site that the virus has not been able to change a lot without losing fitness. And so we target this highly conserved epitope and that has shown to be resilient uh, to date uh, against um, any of the variants that have emerged. And what we know is that our antibody uh, based on a sequence analysis um, Uh, is likely to bind to uh, Omicron and not lose any of its uh, neutralization potency.
1: Can you walk us through, Dr. Gerngross, how is it that this particular drug can can treat but also prevent? In Morgan Stanley's note, they they highlight the fact that uh, compared to the other treatments on the market, you know, from Lilly and Regeneron, those treatments are compromised by Omicron, but yours is not. They don't mention anything about the prevention. Can you tell us more about that?
7: Um, The the key differentiating factors are its breadth and potency of neutralization. So once you have that, you can then further improve the antibodies and engineer them to have a long half-life. So our molecule has a half-life of um, just under 100 days. And so with that, you can now think about a single intramuscular injection that basically affords you protection for an entire year. And that's very powerful vis-a-vis what we've seen in the vaccine space. Well, we did see very high efficacy at the beginning, but as variants have emerged, that efficacy has been eroding and as time goes by, also neutralization titers uh, tend to go down. And uh, with that, um, you know, we see the emergence of these uh, breakthrough infections. And so our hope is that with a single potent broadly neutralizing antibody that can be um, sustained in the body for up to a year, uh, we're likely going to see protection for 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 a much longer period of time. The other big differentiator is yep. that the antibody, unlike vaccines, that elicit immune response, and very often that doesn't actually happen when you are immune compromised or undergoing cancer treatment, this drug upon administration is going to be there, and it's going to be there for, as I said, up to a year and protect you. So that's those are the key differences.
3: What kind of clinical data have you seen so far? It sounded like from your update a couple weeks ago, you're expecting to have the the full data package that you'll need to file for emergency use authorization perhaps in the second quarter of next year and filing in the third quarter. So, so far, uh, what kind of protection have you seen your antibody be able to provide?
7: We have not released any data on the protection. Those are ongoing trials that, of course, you don't unblind until you have all the patients enrolled and have data. But what we have discussed is the remarkable um, half-life of the antibody. So the ability of uh, being injected once in after six months, the neutralization titers of Adagia 20 are significantly higher than we see with any of the vaccines. So again, this is what gives us hope that we can in particular serve patient populations that are not responding well to uh, vaccines and do not mount a sufficiently protective immune response upon being vaccinated.
1: Dr. can you walk us through what the time frame is to application for EUA for this treatment slash vaccine? I'm not really sure what you want to call a treatment and prevention um, drug. And also, can you talk to us about sort of the window that you might have to get this on the market? Because it sounds like Pfizer and Moderna are working very hard on modifying their vaccines or, or testing another booster against Omicron. And if they get those vaccines to market, are you concerned that you miss the window in terms of getting your treatment into the arms of people as opposed to Pfizer or Moderna?
7: The, the short answer is absolutely not. What we've seen now and what we've said all along is that this virus has shown a remarkable, remarkable ability of evading the immune system and coming up with new variants. Um, And the joke that we have internally is that the Greek alphabet has 24 letters and we're at letter 15, and there are going to be more to come. So the idea that this is over with Omicron, we just think is not going to be the case. There will be many, many more variants that we have to deal with. And so asking about, you know, the deployment of, you know, new vaccines, the problem with that is if you start working on Omicron today, by the time you are basically able to – um, broadly deploy that, there is likely going to be another version or another variant. And so I'm not sure that this is a, this is a, um, a, a, a credible strategy.
1: All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Tillman Gerngross, the CEO of Adagio Therapeutics. And of course, our thanks as well to Meg Terrell. Still ahead, Bitcoin rebounding a bit today, but still lower by about 11 percent over the past two weeks. And the Omicron variant isn't the only thing driving this selling. What else is weighing on crypto? That's next. Bitcoin rebounding today along with the rest of the market after Friday's steep sell-off, but the cryptocurrency is still down about 18% from its all-time intraday high of $69,000 set just three weeks ago. Joining us now is Frank Chaparro, director of the news, of news at The Block. Frank, great to have you with us.
9: Thanks for having me on, Melissa.
1: Are the highs of the year in Bitcoin in? I
9: won't speculate on that per se, but clearly we have an asset here that is illustrating a sort of tale of two narratives where sometimes it acts like a tech stock or risk asset and other times it's an inflation hedge. I think if you look at the momentum that's going into the market right now, the amount of billion dollar funds being raised, I would say it's probably hard to say that the highs are in for the year.
1: So, I mean, it's interesting that you said that because I've thought the same thing many times that so many, you know, you can say Bitcoin's a safe haven one day and then it proves to you like on Friday, That it's not, in fact. And so, what do you think is a primary driver here? And and how does that sit with investors? I mean, especially as we are looking at such steep percentages below its all time higher, are people sort of getting a little skeptical about the price action up here?
9: I think that if you look at the news, Bitcoin's going to behave differently depending on the news. When we had the CPI data drop on November 10th, right? I think there was a clear push upward on the thoughts that it is a safe haven or inflation hedge asset which tons of investors like Paul Tudor Jones have talked about. But if you look at COVID headlines specifically, Melissa, Bitcoin has not liked those headlines historically and tends to move in line with other tech names and other stocks broadly. In fact, I'm, I you know, I've been talking to traders on morning after the holiday, um, trying to get, get some insights into what's going on. And a lot of them told me that they had big time investors trying to get ahead of a lot of the new variant headlines and and selling some of their, their coin. And so just like other names, it's been dragged down by general macro uh, on COVID. And then also, of course, uh, headlines out of the Fed.
1: I want to ask you about NFTs. And you say in the notes, and this is a quote, there's a lot of salty sentiment over NFTs right now. And I want to know what you mean by salty. I thought Thanksgiving was going to be the moment when you talk to Uncle Bob about what an NFT is and what a bored ape is and that, you know, we'd see a, a bid in, in the market along with a bid in ether, Ethereum.
9: <laughs> well, I think maybe people on crypto Twitter had a little too much salt on their turkey. If you look at some of the interactions, people are kind of upset. Obviously, if you look at NFT specifically, you see a lot of uh, athletes and celebrities hopping in, even Martha Stewart, for instance, I got an email about her second NFT drop. But again, the volumes are still way down from the top, right? You know, we look at our data on our data dashboard, we we saw volumes hitting on a weekly basis over a billion dollars, right? And now that's, that's sitting somewhere around $200 million as of last week. So I think maybe that's why there's some folks a little uh, upset about it not being as hot as it was. But if you look down the road, right, and the amount of capital sitting on the sidelines from new investors coming in, this is a big point of interest for folks. I was talking with Jan Van Eck today, and he was talking to me about how he's heading to Miami for Art Basel, and there's going to be a ton of different entrepreneurs and investors heading there. And a huge focus for the art scene is going to be around NFTs. So there's definitely going to be some more interest there on the horizon, I think.
1: Do you sense more interest or do you sense um, skeptical interest, as in interest because there might be a bubble brewing here or there's going to be a lot of blowouts in NFT land that are you know really going to hurt investors?
9: It's a good question. I mean, there's no doubt that not all of these different projects are going to have sticking power. Some investors might get burned on a given project or drop. But we actually highlighted the, the state of the crypto unicorn market at the block. And we're talking about 60 unicorns in this in this market. So companies in the private market valued above a billion dollars. A number of them are now in the gaming or NFT space. If you rewind the clock to 2019, 2020, effectively zero of companies that are that were unicorns, at that time we were operating in NFTs, now a sizable portion of those unicorns are. So you have the open seas of the world, and then you have Coinbase and potentially Instagram looking to break into that market. So I don't think they'd be making that move. And especially Coinbase now having to answer to investors, I don't think they'd be making that move if they didn't see an upside there and a huge growth story.
1: Frank, thank you. Good to see you. Thank you, you. Frank Chaparro of The Block. Up next, are you on the hunt for yield after Friday's sell-off? One bond investor says higher yielding corporates still aren't your best bet. He joins us now or soon to explain next. Welcome back with the Omicron variant potentially derailing the accelerated taper, as we reported earlier. That's compounding inflation concerns for those who think the Fed is behind the curve. Our next guest is in that camp. He says the Fed is too cavalier in its approach to rising prices. And given its heavy-handed quantitative easing, Treasury markets are no longer reliable as, or as reliable as they've been in the past at predicting economic trends. Joining us now is Gilbert Garcia, managing partner at Garcia Hamilton Associates. Gilbert, great to have you with us.
10: Thank you very much for having me.
1: I thought inflation was transitory. What makes you think it's going to stick around?
10: Well, i tell you, I'm not so sure what transitory means, but it's already been a year, and you already see many of the main components, whether it's housing, whether it's food or anything else, are continuing their acceleration already looking forward into next year. So I think we're beyond transitory, and I also think that we're beyond the Fed's target of, of uh, getting back to full employment. So in my view, the best thing the Fed can do start tapering immediately and get out of the way of the markets so the markets can function properly.
1: Even without the Fed actually formally accelerating its time frame, Gilbert, is there a thought in your mind that perhaps the bond market could do the tightening itself in that the 10 year yield could continue rising, anticipating that the Fed is behind the curve because Omicron, I mean, even if it doesn't have the impact here in the United States that it could have overseas, i.e. President Biden saying lockdowns are off the table, it could still really snarl global supply chains even further, causing more inflationary pressure.
10: There, There is no doubt. And in fact, let's talk about Friday because Friday was a pretty big move but when you're in the markets, you've got to avoid the noise. You had interest rates fall about 14 or 15 basis points. Stocks corrected about 3%. And we're already back. Stocks have like made up half of that. On the bond market, we've made up about a third of that, meaning rates have gone back up about five basis points or so. So at the end of the day, I believe that this new variant right now, it's way too premature to push the panic button. Uh, and so in our view, everything is still in place for continued acceleration of growth, inflation to be much longer than transitory. And we think that rates are going to be resuming their levels, frankly, back to where we were before the virus. And you got to go back to 2018. Before all the trade uh, troubles around China, rates were wrapped around 3%. And the economy was on all cylinders. So I think that's generally where rates will settle.
1: At what point do you think uh, the consumer gets so pinched by inflationary pressures? Because, I mean, you you believe, for one, that inflation is going to be much higher, much steeper, much sharper. And so I'm wondering, you know, when does a consumer get pinched and and therefore impact economic growth?
10: Well, I think it's happening now, uh, especially for those that are on fixed incomes like our seniors or some of those in the minority community. I participated in a Thanksgiving food giveaway here in Houston and we fed 30,000 people. It was remarkable. And we've done some of these other turkey giveaways. People were waiting in line for several hours for a turkey and for food. And so where am I going with all that? I think it doesn't make sense to focus on things like, um, oh, ex-food and energy. Everybody needs to use transportation and everybody's gotta eat. So the headline inflation number was what really matters and what's important and it's running very hot. I think we're going to still run somewhere around the high fives or 6% into next year. I think ultimately uh, the best thing we can do is to do that tapering much faster and to get out of the way of the bond market and let rates go to where they should go and where they need to go
1: we got less than a minute, Gilbert, but what's the consequence of the Fed really being behind the, behind the eight ball when it comes to their taper timeline, time their tightening well, timeline, the, I should say? Certainly,
10: in my opinion, what will happen is the curve will get steeper, and ultimately you're correct in your first question, which is if, they, uh, if the government does not do what it needs to do, you're going to see the bond vigilantes return, and they will tighten for them. The other thing I'd like to add is when you look at South Africa and what's happening with this variant, Obviously, they must have had good controls or good information to give the world that information. And I think it's critical that we recognize that rather than having travel bans, which are just going to increase the panic mm-hmm. and is probably going to lead to others to being discouraged from sharing their data. We right. really need to get more vaccines there. We need to collect the data and we really need to help them with more medical yep. assistance.
1: Gilbert, thanks so much. Great to get your thoughts. Gilbert Garcia. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.